0: widow of Zarephath, where he is sustained by a widow and her young son through two jars, one jar of oil and one jar of water that are not exhausted, even though that's all they had left. And then the young man dies and he brings the young man back from the dead. It's a miracle, miraculous to see. And then we saw his defeat or his, the showdown between the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel when he prepares the sacrifice and God sends fire and it consumes the sacrifice while the prophets of Baal, they called out and there was nothing. God answered by fire, and then he answered after Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain, and then finally it did rain. He prayed that it would rain after three and a half years, and then God brought the rain. And then we saw last week as he confronted Naboth, uh, or not, not Naboth, but Ahab, after Ahab had stolen Naboth's vineyard, and then God had proclaimed death for Ahab. But now we come to the end of Ahab's life. Ahab dies according to the Word of the Lord. And we move in to the latter part, or the next chapter in Elijah's life. We see now he's interacting with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Now Ahaziah comes to reign, and he has a, a reign of about two years. And you think that he would learn from his parents' mistakes, but he doesn't. He's a fool. How many of you have ever been a fool in your life? You ever done something Foolish? I think we all have. I'm going to talk a little bit in a moment about something that I've done foolish in my life. One of the many, 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 many things in my life. But before we get to that, let's open up your Bibles if you have one. Hopefully you do. To the book of 1 Kings, and uh, actually 2 Kings, but we're going to be reading a portion of 1 Kings. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, and hopefully you have one with you, if you don't, I would encourage you to try to look off someone. And if, you, if that's a little bit difficult, just listen in. But 2 Kings is in the Old Testament. It's only a few books in. If you're having a hard time finding it, uh, look in your table of content. It's got a 2 in front of it. But we're reading from 2 Kings chapter 1, and we'll be reading from 1 through verse 18. But even actually before that, I'd like us to look back at the previous chapter, 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51. Let's actually start there, and then we'll jump into 2 Kings chapter 1. It has a little bit of a backstory that I believe is important. It is our custom here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word, so please stand with me, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51, all the way through 2 Kings 1-118. through 8, 118. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil... In the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, and in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal, and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah, we're in Second Kings chapter 1 now, if you're having a hard time keeping up, verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell to the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and lay sick. So he sent messengers, telling them, go. "'Inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness.' But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, "'Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, "'Is it because there is no god in Israel that you were going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron?' "'Now therefore, thus says the Lord, "'You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die.' So Elijah went." The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Lord, is it because there is no god in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men and with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, "'O man of God, the king says, come down.' But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, "'If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you in your 50.' Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him in his 50. And the king said to him, sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered him and said to him, "'O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly.' But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. And again, again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Blessed be to the reading and understanding of his word. You may be seated. We're going to learn about being a fool. That's what I've entitled this message, Fools. Now, this passage can cover a lot of different things. We see a lot of different elements. We see grace. We see holiness. Today, we're going to focus on one aspect of it that I think is sometimes overlooked, and it's talking about being a fool. Now, I'm sure that everyone in this room has been a fool at one period of time in their life. Think of one of the most foolish things that you've done. Or is there too many to choose from? I know myself, when I was nine years old, I did one of the most foolish things I could ever imagine. Uh, It was baseball time. It was summer. And I wanted a baseball bat. Now, I didn't have a dad in the home, so I didn't know a lot about baseball. And my friends were all playing, and I had to kind of learn on my own. And one of the things that I knew is that they all had Louisville Slugger baseball bats. And I wanted a Louisville Slugger baseball bat. It just was the normal wood grain. It had Louisville Slugger on it. I wanted that so bad, I needed that in order to hit the ball. At least that's what I thought. So my mother, God bless her, went out and bought me a baseball bat. And it said Louisville Slugger on it. There was just one problem. It was black. I wanted the brown Louisville Slugger baseball bat. So a friend of mine told me a way that I could get the black off, that I could put paint thinner or, uh, you know, like varnish remover on it. So I went into my garage. I was nine. I went into my garage, found it. And remember, I don't have a dad in the home. It's just me and my mom. It's summertime. And uh, I start putting paint thinner all over my bat in order to get the black paint off my bat. And it's coming off. And then they, I remember him telling me, in order, a quick way to get it off your bat, and, and I've been doing it for about 20 minutes, mind you. He goes, a quick way to get all that stuff off your bat before you paint it again is just light it on fire, and then, and then it'll just go right off of it. I'm like, well, that sounds pretty smart. So I take the bat, and I light it on fire, and I'm hold, I'm th- I am holding. I think I'm a genius. I'm just holding with one finger. I, I know that it's going to, I didn't realize it was going to light so fast. <laughs> so it went straight up, and I see it creeping from my finger, so I let the bat go, and it falls. Now, my garage is all closed, and I've been playing, messing with this paint thinner for about 20 minutes. So the paint thinner is all over the floor, so when the bat hits the floor, the fire just spreads. Now, I'm thinking, my mom's going to kill me. So I think I'm a genius. I run outside, I, adrenaline rushing in my nine-year-old body. I throw out the garage door, and I look for the most valuable possession in the whole place as it's going up in flames. All, and it, there was a lawnmower, so I grab the lawnmower, and I pull it out right as it goes, boom! It blows up right before, right, I mean, literally almost right before my face. So I run right back in there, and I think, what else could I save? And I'm looking around. Now, there's another thing that was going on at this period of time, is that in, in the wintertime, we had a kerosene heater. So we had a big, giant drum of kerosene in this room, and as I'm looking around and my nine-year-old, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And and right before hope is lost, my neighbor comes in with a fire extinguisher and he blows everything out. And uh, I'm sitting there going, Don't tell my mom. <laughs> She'll kill me. I'd like to see ten. And uh, and I'm looking at. I go over and I look at the kerosene drum and it's swollen. Right before it had burst. Now, did I mention this was my mother's birthday? Did I, did I mention that? This was my mother's birthday, too, right? Now, I did something very foolish <laughs> that day. But I learned from my mistake. I learned, don't play with fire, stupid. <laughs> now, many of us, though, I mean, we, we, we've all made mistakes in our life. The, the question, though, is whether you're a fool or not, is not making a mistake the first time. It's making it the second time. I tell that to my kids all the time. You know, you can make mistakes, Just don't repeat him. And sometimes we know that we do. But you know that there's other people out there that keep repeating the same mistakes over and over after warning, after warning, after warning, and after warning. And Ahaziah is that kind of person. Now that's a fool. Now there are two kinds of fools. These aren't in your notes. There are two kinds of fools there's the intellectual fool. This is the the fool that the psalmist talks about in Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They've looked at the facts of Christianity and they consider them fables. And they reject Christianity out of hand. That's the intellectual fool. But then there's another kind of fool. This is the practical fool. This is the person who acknowledges one thing, but does something entirely different. Now, I'd venture to say that there's many people in this room that falls into that category. Especially in reference to their Christian faith that we receive warning after warning, and we say we believe, but for all intents and purposes, we live like unbelievers. Now, we might know how to speak the language. We know the words. We know the motions. But for all intents and purposes, we act like fools. Now, Ahaziah or Ahaziah is a practical fool in every way, shape, and form. And it's through his life that we follow, we will see what will happen to a person who disregards the power and providence of God. That's the first point that I'd like you to write in your notes. The power and the providence of God. That's what a fool is. A real fool. This practical fool, just like Ahaziah. Disregards the power and the providence of God. Now we think about it, the life of a prince had to have been a pretty cool life. All the extravagances a kid can want—the best food, clothes, education, great friends—you know, popularity—he was pampered, the heir to the throne. But he'd also been privy to many different things. See, Ahaziah had seen firsthand the power and providence of God. He had no doubt at seen, or at not at least heard about Elijah. He'd heard the story of the great famine. He'd heard the story of the heavenly fire coming down. From Carmel, He had heard the story of the man who prayed and then it had rained. He'd heard the story of this man, this troubler of Israel, the prophet who time and time again called his father to turn from evil and follow God in his ways alone. But we'll also see that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And we see this disregard is seen in the light of his affliction. His affliction. That's the letter A in your notes. Reread that and look at verse 2 with me. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Now Ahaziah falls through the grating in his upper room. We don't know if it was a window or door or what exactly happened, but he's in Samaria, it's the the northern capital's kingdom, or the kingdom's capital at the time, and uh, he falls through it. And he falls and he severely injures himself to the point where it's life-threatening. Perhaps the injury opened up a wound and and an infection set in because we see him using the term sickness or illness, not just injury. Something happened, and he's sick and he's hurting, and it's not by accident. See, God's behind this entire episode. God's trying to get his attention. Remember, God had a promise to Ah um, Ahaziah's father in 1 Kings chapter 21, 21, said to him, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut you off or cut off from Ahab every male bonder free in Israel. He said, I'm going to take out your house. Matter of fact, your house is going to be like the first king in Israel's history, the guy by the name of Jeroboam, son of Nabad, who had no descendants. That's what's going to happen to you. But with God, there's always repentance. Even in the midst of judgment, God allows for repentance. Even in the midst of judgment, He gives warning. Just Hezekiah is a case in point. God judges him and he prays and he cries and God Answers his prayer and extends 15 years to his life because he told him that he was going to die for something that he'd done. But God responds. Even Ahab had been prophesied his death, but he humbles himself. So here's this prophecy being worked out in Ahaziah's life. He undoubtedly knew about it. And yet here he is, sick, and he's hurting. And does he turn to the one true God? No, he doesn't. He turns or sends his messengers to Ekron, town of about 25 miles south of jerusalem he's a very superstitious man and wants to find out the reason for his ailment he failed to recognize the power and providence in his affliction but as his messengers were on the way we know that the word of the lord comes to elijah and says confronts them so he confronts them and before they can even get to their destination he confronts them and tells them is there because there's no god in israel in essence are you that big of a fool there's no God in Israel. We see that three times in the text. It's very important that we recognize why that's being repeated. He's acting in unbelief is what he's doing. He says there is no God in Israel. He goes to these false gods. He failed to recognize God's power and His providence and His affliction and in Elijah's intervention. Look at verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Rise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going down to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Is it because there is no God in Israel? After being kind of confronted by Elijah, the messengers returned to deliver this message. And Ahaziah wanted to know, why did you come back so quickly? The journey would take a considerable amount of time. Why are you come back? And they tell him that someone came and told them to go back and talk to Elijah. They didn't know what his name, but they only knew what he was wearing. He asked what he was wearing, and 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 says, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist, the same dress that John the Baptist wears or wore. Ahaziah was very familiar with such the description of this prophet, and knew it was Elijah. And rather than repenting as his father Ahab had done, he sent 50 men to inquire and capture and kill him. He knew it was Elijah by his wardrobe and his words. His words were those of a man of conviction, willing to stand in the face of great danger." The words of a man tried in the wilderness who had seen God's provision, who wouldn't back down from any king, who had seen 450 prophets be defeated after fire had come down and he was the only one standing for God at that moment in time, in that place. This was a man that had been tried in the furnace of faith. And he knew that God was infinitely stronger. Once again, you think Ahaziah would consider repenting after he sends the group of 50 men and he's, uh, Elijah's on the mountain and he, they said to him, men of God, the king commands, come down. And he says, if I am a man of God, may there be fire come down and consume you and your 50 men. And I, I wonder what Ahaziah heard, what he thought when he heard about the 50 men. I mean, every, people had undoubtedly saw it at the foot of the mountain. They saw what had happened. They'd heard the words. And they saw the fire of God come down. You think that he would be repentant. I mean, his father had seen the fire of God, but his father didn't repent either. But he had heard the stories about it, and here it is, hearing it all over again. The fire coming down. And what's he do? Does he repent? No. He sends another contingency of 50 men. That's how unbelief acts. Unbelief acts stubbornly, obstinately, holding on to pride, unwilling to res- res- just humble themselves. He doesn't repent. He's a fool and lives if there is no God. He does what a fool would do and sends more troops, more physical troops to apprehend a heavenly prophet. The armies of man are no match for Almighty God. But Ahaziah doesn't look at the things of God but the things of man. He wants to finish what his dad and mom had always wanted to do, and that was kill Elijah. And again, we see this disregard seen in the destruction of the soldiers. Look at verse 9. The king said to him, a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. And we know the fire of God comes down. Three times Ahaziah would send his men to get Elijah. Twice word, word would come back that the fire of heaven had fallen. and destroyed them. You would have thought after the first time, or for sure the second time, he would have said, wait a minute, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. But he doesn't. He is hostile. He doesn't, he's he's just operating in some ways out of his right mind. Because he's holding on to his sin, holding on to his pride. The same prophet is coming to confront him, and the same fire, proving who is boss, but none of it changes his heart. The fool says in his heart, There is no God. There are many who wake up each and every day. They see creation. They enjoy life. They see miracle after miracle before them in the kaleidoscope of God's greatness. And still, with every breath, says there is no God. They are unwilling to see the power and providence of God in their lives. They're fools. But what does a position like this lead to? When someone thinks this way, they go down the painful path of unbelief. See, God was trying to get His attention by showing His providence and power, but Ahaziah was blinded by his own obstinacy. It's our own pride that gets in the way. We refuse to back down. Like Pharaoh, after seeing God's power and the miracles and the plagues of Egypt, the scripture, the scripture says that he hardened his heart. God is trying to get our attention. When we continually go against Him and operating in unbelief, there's going to be pain that waits. It's like saying, I disregard God's law. It's like saying, I'm driving on Galena Boulevard and I'm flying down and then I see the stoplight, but it doesn't apply to me. I'm just going to disregard it. And what's going to happen? You're going to crash into someone, probably in their life. And you're going to get hurt yourself. That's what happens when we disregard God's law. We are a law unto ourselves, and we we expect others to obey the law, but yet we ourselves are somehow above the law. And we can't do that. We do so at our own detriment. I have met far too many people who have lived their lives as if there is no God, and they have opened themselves to all kinds of pain unbelief disregards God's power and providence and can give a place to the enemy. Give a place to the enemy. Look at verse 1. In verse 1 we read that after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had seen this in his kingdom. The Moabites, which was the nation that shared the border with the northern kingdom, had been subjugated by King David and had remained subject to the kingdom of the tw- ten tribes even after the kingdom split in two between north and south. But when Israel was defeated by the Assyrians at the time of Ahab, they took advantage of this defeat. And they said, we're going to take our land back. We're going to rebel. So as soon as Ahab died, they thought, here's our chance. We can get our freedom. It's weak. He's new. He doesn't know anything about it. And he, they rebelled. Now, with looking, not, without looking too much into it, there is a spiritual parallel here. When we give ourselves over to unbelief, we're opening ourselves up to the enemy. As believers, we are told that God will never leave us nor forsake us. His seal is upon us that God is our defender, our refuge, our help in time of need. That He's our protector. That He has the Holy Spirit. He puts the Holy Spirit within us to convict us of sin. To show us when we are unrighteous. And to show us how to live the life that God intended. But the unbeliever has no such defense. Defense. The unbeliever is completely susceptible to the the enemy. Matter of fact, it says in 2 Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth of the glory of God. They can't see it. It's like being in a war zone and they're walking around blindfolded and naked with no defense. And yet the master that they're listening to is the God of this world. And He's continually harming them and giving them directions. And they think though it's the enemy that's harming them when it's their own master. That's what's going on. If Satan gives them direction, and, and even as he's giving direction and people are listening to him, they are hurting themselves, because Satan doesn't care. He's, he's come to rob, to steal, to kill and destroy, to destroy, to destroy us, especially those who are believers. So Moab rebelled. Unbelief enters in where they turn against the kingdom, open a place for the enemy. And we do too if we continue on in unbelief. Unbelief chooses to look to the creation rather than creator. And our unbelief can lead us to pursue idolatry. Idolatry. Ahaziah was a superstitious man and he sent messengers to inquire of the false god Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. The name literally means Lord of the Flies, which is either a deliberate slight by the divine narrator for the normal title Beelzebul, which means Baal the Exalted, or Baal of the Master height," or it simply means Lord of the Flies, a veiled reference to the power behind such a false god, Satan. Whatever the case, Ahaziah sought the assistance of this local deity, the god of Ekron, as I mentioned before, a city about 25 miles west of Jerusalem. Ahaziah wanted to know his future. You know, And there are some who don't think that knowing the future is that big of a deal. They don't think it's that big of a deal to read their horoscope or get their palm read, their fortune told, or look into a crystal ball. But God's world is crystal clear. It's demonic. It's entirely demonic. You're opening yourself up to all kinds of spiritual realities that you that are not to be trifled with. And, and you will think, and they will make you think, that you are in control of them. I remember speaking to a woman who was a, a Wicca witch for a period of time. Actually, my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law was a wicked witch. I know it sounds funny. I always said, my mother-in-law is a witch. People laugh. And I said, no, really. Mother-in-law was a wicked witch for a period of time. And uh, until recently, she came out of it and came back and turned her heart back to the Lord, which is a miracle of praise to God. But I remember talking to her, and I was trying to understand what she was thinking. She was a full practicing witch at the time. Even going to her house, uh, she lived in a trailer at the time, and had this little christmas light pentagram in the window and there's all kinds of incense and you walk in the room and you just sense this evil and i remember just interacting with her and she says i have a spirit guide that appears to me in the form of a woman that tells me what i'm supposed to do and she goes i follow her and i said has it ever worked out well and the more she kind of thought about it she's like no it hasn't and this was over time obviously not in that first conversation but it wasn't helping her. It was doing nothing but harming her. See, that's what Satan does. He likes to masquerade as an angel of light. And he likes to direct our hearts where he thinks the demons make it appear that we are the ones in control when the reality is they are. And leading us into all kinds of unbelief and degradation. We have to be very careful. And he is pursuing idolatry. He's wanting to know the future to this false god but it's demonic. There's no sugarcoating it. It's from hell itself. Ahab was wrong in doing it, and so are we. We can see that Ah Ahaziah's unbelief and our own keeps us from personal humility. Think about it. Here's a man who heard all the stories of Elijah, the great Elijah, the hated Elijah, the enemy and troubler of Israel who started a famine, who called down fire from heaven, slaughtered Baal's prophets, and just called down fire on his 100 men. You think after hearing about the first fire from heaven, he would have responded in repentance, but no, Pride will not let him give in. He will not repent. Not after the first fire, so he sends a second group. They too are destroyed. Would he repent then? No. And then a third. That third man, he comes humbly. He realizes who it is that he's dealing with. And Elijah goes with him. But you think Ahaziah would have responded In humility, but he doesn't. See, when we hold on to our own belief, we become proud. We can't humble ourselves. And it's still the same today. Pride is what keeps man from God. C.S. Lewis calls it the great sin. In his Mere Christianity, he writes this, "...there is one vice of which no man in the world is free." which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice, and at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves." And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. He goes on to say this. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with every, everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having something, or having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. And lastly, he puts it all together. He writes, For of course, power is what pride really enjoys. The Christians are right. It is pride that is, which has is the, been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people and unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity, enmity, enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is, in every respect, immeasurably, immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, and therefore you know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you can't see something that is above you. Ahaziah was proud. He wouldn't submit himself to God's purposes or his prophet. It was too much to stomach. The answer to all of his greatest troubles lay right in front of him if he would just humble himself. But he wouldn't. A world in all of its pain, in all of its torment, in all of its struggle refuses to look to God and say that all I need is you in my hour of need. How is a Christian to respond to this? How can we reach modern-day Ahaziahs? Well, reaching modern-day Ahaziahs means we must be devoted to playing our part. What I mean is this, in a world such as ours, Christians must be all the more devoted to a ministry that reaches out and pursues such people. But why? Because we at one time were disobedient, pursuing our own way, following the way of the devil, until God opened our eyes with His grace and love. But notice what it involves. Our part begins with a calling. A calling. Elijah had been called to engage Ahaziah in verse 3. And we have been called to share the good news to a lost world. That's what this love your neighbor, share Jesus is all about. Loving our neighbors enough. Called to speak to the world that God has placed us in. It is a call to step out of our comfort zone and into the danger zone. It is a call to go beyond yourself and what you see because we walk by faith and not by sight. It is a call to take up the cross to lift him up as the serpent was in the wilderness amidst the people that were perishing. It is a call to stand as Aaron did when the plague broke out among Israel and he put incense in his hand and he ran in the midst of them, holding it high above his head. And the text says that he stood between the living and the dead. That's what we are to do because we walk around with spiritually dead people everywhere we go. And we're continually to be continually lifting the name of Christ high and speaking the truth in love. That's what Elijah did. Now, notice that fulfilling this calling takes a great deal of courage. It takes courage to do this in your workplace. It takes courage to do this in your home. And it takes courage to do this with your family, to talk to them about Jesus Christ. I understand how difficult it is. I understand how fearful we can be. I understand the reservations that we have and the past conversations that play in our mind Where we were either stumped or whether the conversation didn't go well. And it turned into an argument. And the whole family just says, I don't want to be a part of it any longer. I don't know if you've ever had that. I remember being at Thanksgiving and I was debating my cousin about Christ. And it ended up turning from a five to ten minute conversation into a three hour conversation. So much though that I began to look around the room that the whole family had left intentionally and gone into the other side of the room. And then when they see us get together in the future, they all just start walking into the other room before it even starts. Because we are going to talk, and we are going to talk through this. And I talk to him because I love him. Now, it's not easy. We've learned to be cordial. We've made a lot of mistakes in our conversations. But I've learned a lot in just debating and talking with him. And I know that it takes a great deal of courage. He stood up to a pagan king and his wife, and then a second king and his soldiers. It was, it was courageous to stand in the face of overwhelming odds and to speak faithfully in a hostile society. He spoke without apology, and we are to do the same. Odds might be overwhelming against us, and we will be standing alone at times. And let us never forget that it will usually involve a confrontation. Now, I know there are many in this room, you hate confrontation. I don't like confrontation. Some enjoy confrontation. There's a a few, a minority, but I'd say for the most of us, we don't like to to confront individuals. But you know, that's what it's going to involve. It involves confrontation. No matter how hard we try to stay away from it, if you're going to be true to Christ, it's going to involve confrontation. It's inevitable. Because you are trying to tell the truth of Christ. And if a person is operating in unbelief, they're going to collide. There's going to be a confrontation. But it's how we confront. That's the, the important thing. And Isaiah didn't like Elijah's message, and neither do the people of the world. As Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. First 1 Corinthians 1.18 okay. The world will not accept our message, and they will be offended that you are bringing it to them. But we know that God will honor His word, and it will not return void. We also know that the harvest fields are white for harvest, and we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The Scripture also says that we are the aroma of Christ to those that are perishing. Do you realize that? My question is, is, do you smell? We are. There's an aroma. And to some, it is the smell of life. Have you ever been to a place you walk in and it says the olfactory nerve is the most powerful nerve that we have in our bodies? And you smell something and it just brings comfort to your entire body. But there's other things that you walk in or you get around someone that has a certain smell, not that there's anyone here that does, but there's a certain smell that people have and it's just repulsive to you. Or if you've ever been around death and you smelled an animal that has been killed, it smells of death. Now, to some individuals, you will be the smell of life. If you are testifying on behalf of Christ and you are walking with Christ, you will be the smell of life and they will want to know who Jesus is through you. Now, there others are going to be turned off by it. Because you are the smell of death to them. But we know and we, cr- we claim the promises of Christ that when He says the, wheel, the fields are white for harvest, that mo- there's going to be many people out there that are going to smell you and they're going to smell life. They're going to smell life. And there's others that are going to be the smell of death. And we don't know which is which. But we're to continually going on our smelly way. <laughs> Good or bad. But hopefully the sweeter, the more time that you spend with Christ the more you smell. It's like being in front of a campfire and when you're out in the fall, it's cold night and you get done and you take your clothes off and your clothes smell as a fire. After being in the presence of Christ, when you're reading His Word and you're in prayer and you're spending time with Him, and then you still go back to those clothes and they still smell, but when people come into contact with you because you've been with Christ, you still have the smell of Christ on you. That's what it's like. We must be courageous and we must realize that there's going to be confrontation. Now, the life and death message of the cross, it will, accomplish, it will cause many to go against us, though. Those are the ones who smell death. We must remember that it doesn't guarantee change. What does Ahaziah do? Does he repent? No. Let's look at the text. Actually, in verse 16. And said to him, thus says the Lord. So he is talking to Ahaziah. Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal above, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? You are acting so foolish, Ahaziah. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And the text indicts and brings forth the truth. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? See, even when we confront, when we, when we come at him, it doesn't mean that a person is going to change, because we can't change a person's heart. We can pray, we can preach, we can plead, we can, we can sh- just show them our heart, but we can't change an individual's heart. That's God's job. That's God's job. Our, our point is to confront a person with the facts of who Jesus is. To show them that He is the Christ. That He is the one true Son of God. And then God Himself will use that to either bring about their salvation or their condemnation. It doesn't guarantee change. Amidst all the opportunities before Him hearing the prophet's words, hearing about His men's death, He died saying there was no God. This is what happened to Ahaziah and it happens every day in our own time. Many today will take their last breath saying the words that there is no God. Do you know someone like that? Someone that is holding on to the very end saying that there is no God? Will you continually plead even on their deathbed? I know that there are many who have said that for many years until they got to the last years of their life. Even as they were drawing their last breath, some have said there is no God. While others have realized even in those last few seconds... That Jesus was the Christ. I'm amazed by that. My grandfather was a pastor for over 40 years. Done over a thousand funerals in his ministry time. It's amazing to me. And his greatest ministry, and I used to go with him when I was a child, he'd go and talk to these people that were dying in their hospital beds every Saturday. And so many people got led to the Lord. He led them to the Lord right on their deathbed. We never know. It's never too late until that last breath is taken. So don't give up. Don't give up on them. Continue to pray for your family and friends and not to live. Don't live as the world lives, but focus on Christ and continually to plead and preach. God's word came true in all, and Ahaziah died just as God had said. But what does this mean to us? If you would permit me, I'd like to offer a few points to ponder. Our text speaks to three things that I would like to address. Our text speaks not only to the fools of this world, but parents. Parents. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51-53 through 53, says this of Ahaziah. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. This is what I want you to pay very close attention to. Verse 52. He did what was evil on the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. See, look at the path that Ahaziah took. He followed his parents and did what they did. It has been said that parenting is not so much what is taught, but what is caught. How about your kids? What way are you showing them? Many of us are living like practical atheists, and our kids are watching. They see us speaking about Jesus, but denying His Lordship over our lives. We say one thing and we do something entirely different. We're sending an entirely mixed message. and many That's why the statistics are startling. I don't know if you've seen them or not, and statisticians vary, but they're saying now that 88% of children that were raised in church abandoned their faith in their first year of college. 88%. You have to ask yourself the question, why? Why? Is it that we're not preparing our children? Or maybe they're noticing a degree of hypocrisy in the home. We have to ask ourselves those very important questions. It's not just making them outward conformity, but it's getting their heart. Getting their heart. We need to make sure that we not only talk about Jesus, but do what the Word of God says. I implore you to be examples to your children, and I don't care how old they are. It gets tougher when they get older. But God will empower you whenever you are willing to make the greatest impact for Him. Next, this text speaks to our perspective. Our perspective. Looking at this passage reminds us that we are to turn to God alone in our hour of need. We refuse to give ourselves over to superstition or anything else that is against God's Word. He alone is the one in whom I trust. There are a lot of things in this world that beg us to place our hopes in it. But all of them lead to destruction. Our trust and refuge is in God and in Him alone, in good times or in bad. And lastly, this passage speaks to our priorities. Our priorities. Because there is, there is a God and He has saved me, it is my priority to worship and serve Him every day. Let it never be said that we lived a moment in our lives as if there was no God in Israel. May every word we speak and step that we take be a declaration that God is our Savior and King. May it never be said that there is not a God at Village Bible Church Grace Campus. May it never be said that there is not a God, that there there is no God in Aurora. May it always be that people see Jesus Christ in us. And may the Lord Jesus never let us stray from Him as long as we live. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, help us not to be fools, to operate as fools do. Lord, we know that we make our share of mistakes and we know that there is grace available for us. Lord, we know how much our unbelief can, be distra- can, can just sabotage our faith. So Lord, please, as the man prayed in interacting with You, he says, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Lord, we come before You asking, us that we may, asking You that we may not ever be like Ahaziah. May we truly recognize and see what You're doing in our world. May we see You in the midst of our affliction. We know so many people have turned to You while they've been on the, uh, the bed of affliction. And Lord, we also know that we... We see Your hand at work in our world today. Lord, may we always be mindful of Your power and Your providence. And Lord, if there's someone here today who has hardened their heart, who has not followed You, it has been operating as a fool, Lord, I pray that You show them the foolishness of the cross, that they will see it as the power of God unto salvation. So Lord, help us to be good stewards, to to speak powerfully in the middle of this world, to be steadfast, and true to You. That Your name might receive glory and we might walk in increased joy. And we pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.